Well, good morning. Yes, we have people here, so good morning. There we go. Hey, I'm glad to be here with you um, as we continue our series. Actually, we're finishing up our series titled How to Deal with an Injustice. Next week, we'll start back up with the essentials that we pause to look at this for four weeks. And remember, the goal of this entire series is to help us as Christians respond biblically to the injustices of the world. Because if we were honest, and maybe you haven't seen it, I have, or maybe some of us have seen it, others haven't, Christians haven't always responded to the injustices of the world appropriately. But the good thing for us is Jesus and the Bible has plenty to say about it. Because what we learned last week is that for Jesus, justice is about restoring uh, is about restoring people in society to the love of God and the love of others. But there are so many injustices in the world, so where do we start from the lack of clean drinking water around the world to human trafficking, the extreme debt of third world countries or racism or Christians being killed and persecuted for their faith or extreme poverty and on and on and on, we could list them out. Once we start looking into all that is needed in this world, it can be extremely overwhelming and it can be debilitating trying to figure out, well, how do I and where can I get involved in these things? And so today I hope to bring some clarity and as we end our series, the goal today is to not end the conversation, but hopefully have you start or continue the conversation we've been having over the past couple of weeks, and I pray and I hope that you can personally think through how you can make a difference in the world, how you can stand up for an injustice. And so today, we're simply going to look at this idea of injustice, and we're going to answer those five W's and the one H. Scott, the title of my sermon is five W's and one H before you ask, okay? And I'm sure you've all heard about these before. They help everybody and you, me, bring extreme clarity into a situation. I learned them in the military when I had a chaplain who'd tell me to do something and I would do exactly what he said. So for instance, he said, hey, we're going to have a Bible study. So put up flyers that we're going to have a Bible study. So I said, okay. So I would go around, put up flyers that says Bible study. Yeah, that's about it. I didn't give a lot of information. That's what I did. I did what you asked. He's like, all right. He's like, hold on. Let me help you out. Before you put up any piece of communication, before you do anything for me, here's the questions you need to ask. The who, what, when, where, and how. And he said, when you answer those questions, put that into a flyer, put that into any piece of communication, and then share it with others. And I'm sure you know these. If not, I promise it can bring extreme clarity in anything that you're going through. But those basic questions I want us to answer today to wrap up this series. And of course, they'll all be biblically, but here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at why do we stand for an injustice? I hope you've already learned that, but we'll go over it again. We're going to look up how do you know what to take a stand for? I know many of you have been asking that. Or what can I do? When do I stand? Where do I stand? And who should stand? This sermon is by no means exhaustive to this topic. We have a, a, a pretty large set of scriptures that answers many of these, and we can go in a lot more detail. But I hope to just give you some pieces to continue this 
conversation. So let's dive right in and first answer the first one is why should I stand for an injustice? Why should I stand for an injustice? I hope you've learned by now that Christians are to be agents of justice in the world. We don't have an option of if we're going to stand. The better question is what are we going to stand for? Because as Christians, it's our duty to stand for things. Because justice, quite directly, justice is simply doing God's will on this earth. It's very simple. Look at what he says, Isaiah 61, 8. It says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Look at Micah 6, 8. I hope you know this one. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And that word good is very important here. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So as we can see from Micah, to act justly is considered part of what is good. And so in the New Testament, when we see this idea of good, we have to remember it's, it's wrapped up in acting justly. It's wrapped up in love, mercy, and walking humbly with our God. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your, what's that next part? Good deeds. Right? That's a part of justice. Or you have 1 Peter 2.15 that says, For it is God's will that by doing good, doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So as we learn, and I hope you've, you've starting to gain clarity that our theology, our theology, our understanding of God leads us to be agents of justice in this world. And it's called for, short term for you to remember or write down, it's called redemptive-based justice. That's, as Christians, what we should practice, redemptive-based justice. Because our understanding of justice comes from God declaring us justified through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for our sins once for all, that the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So our understanding of justice comes from the cross, and it comes from our understanding of being justified by grace. Meaning, although we didn't deserve saving, Christ made us right with God. And because we've been justified by grace, it immediately eliminates all of those questions you want to ask when you see an injustice. It's not just you, but it's all of us ask these questions, those negative things that say, well, well, do they deserve it? You ever saw someone in need and the first thing you asked is, well, do they deserve it? I mean, are they worth it? But I mean, look, look what they did. And don't we already have laws that's supposed to help that? Because a quick recap of our faith reminds us that, no, we didn't deserve life, but Christ gave it to us. Although we were his enemies, we, he still deemed us worthy of his life and gave it for us. And although there was the law in place, the law has come to an end where Jesus brought us this new covenant. My point is, although we didn't deserve saving, God did it anyways. Our understanding of justice is rooted in the grace of God. So we stand because of Christ. 
And we stand because our faith tells us to stand for those in need because justice is simply doing God's will on this earth. So standing up for injustice isn't an option. It's simply our faith, our faith lived out. So we want to help others flourish on this earth. As Jesus came to bring us an abundant life, we want to help them live in that. So why do we stand for an injustice? You should know this by now. This is what we say when someone says, why do you care? Why does this matter? Well, we stand for an injustice because it's doing God's will on this earth. Because we believe in redemptive-based justice, that because we've been redeemed and justified by God, we should therefore be agents of justice and grace into this earth. So now that we have that covered, why? Let's look at how, because this is the one all of us have. How do I know what to stand for? And this simply comes from the problem of there being so many needs on this earth. You know, 50 years ago, this wasn't so, we we didn't notice as much, or maybe 100 years ago when all we saw was our community and we'd hear some news every once in a while. But now with social media and the internet, man, we could see problems absolutely everywhere. But the truth is we can't stand for everything, can we? I mean, social media has shown us that people can have an opinion about everything, but we personally can't possibly stand for everything. We don't have enough time. See, several, questions, several years ago, this question drove this pastor. His name was Bill Hybels, crazy, trying to figure out how do people get involved and why do they get involved in things. And he wrote a book, and maybe you should check it out. It's called Holy Discontent, Fueling the Fire That Ignites Personal Vision. He ends up writing this. He says, I believe the motivating reason why millions of people choose to do good in the world around them is because there is something wrong in that world. In fact, there is something so wrong they just can't stand it. Like Popeye, y'all know who Popeye is? Yes, okay, we all know who Popeye is, good, we're on the same page there. Like Popeye, they too experience a firestorm of frustration moment when they grow so completely, what's that word? What is it? Incensed. I didn't even know that word was in here. I would have practiced it several times. I've never seen that before. Okay, by the present state of affairs that they throw up their hands and they shout, that's all I can stand and I can't stand it no more. You remember that's a quote from Popeye, right? Okay, my, we've already seen my English isn't the best, but it's not that bad, okay? Can't stand it no more. As a result, they devote their vocational lives, their volunteer energies, and their hard-earned money to making sure it gets fixed. So he says, this holy discontent, he calls it, is when something's going on in the world and you just feel that you have to do something about it, where there's a frustration. And when your frustration aligns with the priorities of God, meaning the things he wants to do in this world, when those two things align, he calls it a holy discontent that you are standing and doing something very important for our God. In other words, you are joining God to make the world right. He calls it a holy discontent. And for a spoiler alert, just to let you know, a holy discontent is not about you making more money. It's not about getting the next title. It's not about another car, another boat, or another bike. That's not what a holy discontent is. It's something outside of yourself. Look at Nehemiah. He's an amazing leader in the Old Testament And his story begins when Israel has been taken back to the promised land by Ezra. The the people have come back to build their town. 
They've been integrated. They've been in exile. So people have started other jobs. And Nehemiah is a cupbearer for a foreign king. And a cupbearer simply is one of the king's most trusted advisors. He tastes the wine and is responsible to filling the wine up for the king to make sure he doesn't get poisoned. He also is a financial advisor and the bearer of the ring of the king that, that makes all the seals a signet ring for him. And so what has happened is Ezra has already led this group back to build up the land. Nehemiah didn't choose to go back. He has a good job. He has probably family. I don't know. He has all this stuff going from over here. So he knows Israel's gone back to rebuild. And he's very curious about how it's going. And one of his brothers show up and he says, hey, what's going on back at home? How's it going? Are they rebuilding? What's the progress look like? You know, I know I'm doing good here, but tell me what's going on back at home. It says, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back are in the providence or in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Evidently, people in the Bible are very emotional. Have you all noticed that recently? I'm going to do a series on emotions and just look at crying and things like that. Tim, you cry a lot? No? Chuck, you cry, don't you? Yeah, I bet you cry all the time. We already knew that. Okay. So he's crying. He gets emotional about a broken wall. Now, I don't know about you, but a broken wall doesn't call me to get emotional. A burnt down gate doesn't cause me to get emotional. In fact, a burnt down gate and broken down walls doesn't cause the other people in Jerusalem to get emotional because they're allowing it to be broken and burnt down. That doesn't bother them, but it bothers Nehemiah. In other words, hearing this news about these walls and about this gate ignited something in him. It stirred a passion in him in a way that other things didn't. I mean, this hit him at the core. This passion, he didn't let it go out. He decided to do something about it. You see, there are so many organizations, and I bet you know some, maybe you've started some that have started because of little things like that. In fact, how many of you have heard of World Vision? Anybody? Yeah, World Vision, Dr. Bob Pierce experienced a master storm, a massive firestorm of frustration when he watched kids who were orphaned by the Korean War, when they were waiting in line to get food, some of them would just drop dead while waiting in line of food. And he said, what's going on? Why are, why are kids dropping dead? I mean, we're here to help. They said, we don't have enough food for them. And now that organization is one of the largest Christian organizations helping those in need with food. It just started from one man seeing a need and saying, well, we got to do something about that. We've heard of Fostering Hope, which is right down the road from us, Tabby. She had a passion for the, the foster care kids saying they were leaving their homes when they were being ripped out of these situations. If you're ever in foster care, it's never a good reason why. And they didn't have their belongings. They just had trash bags. And Tabby said, well, we're going to do something about that. Mother Teresa, we've all heard of her. Her ministry started because on her way to teach at the high school, she would walk by and see the homeless people and look at the people's diseases and lack of food and lack of care and said, well, I'm going to do something about that. Bill Hybels, who started Willow Creek Community Church, he started a church that's probably affected every single church in our country. And it started because he was discontent. He was in school and heard about the church in Acts 2 and said, you mean a church can look like that? You mean a church can be healthy and growing and reach people for Christ? And so he started and it's touched 
every church in our country. And there are countless other examples, but look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, right? We already learned about what that good works includes, and that includes that, that justice part, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared things. He set things in motions for you to do. He's, he's prepared this ministry. Basically, you and I, if you didn't know, we have been saved to serve. If you are alive, he still has work for you to do. If he didn't, where would you be? You'd be with him. But if you are alive and breathing, you still have things to do for the Lord. Hybels writes, he said, there's a verse in the Bible that says that once we turn our lives to God, we begin the process of becoming transformed into his image. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, it's a long-term project to be sure, but over time, Christ followers should in fact begin to look less like themselves and more like Christ. Therefore, on an ever-increasing basis, Christ followers should be abandoning their self-seeking viewpoints and taking on heaven's perspective. They should be loosening the grip on self-centeredness and instead looking for ways to serve others. They should be resisting the temptation to judge and seizing more and more opportunities to give grace instead. Oh, and I love that because as Christians... Our hearts should be stirred for the things that stir the hearts of Jesus. We are called, you and I, all of us are called to live for something much bigger than ourselves, much bigger than our bank accounts, much bigger than our own little world that we've created. He's created us to live for something so much larger. And my plea is please don't wait until you're retired. Please don't wait until you have nothing else to do. Because every retired person I've ever met said they're busier now than before they worked. Isn't that true? Bill, isn't that true? Bill shakes his head, yes. Yeah, there's never a time where you won't have something to do, so don't wait for that time because it won't happen. Give your life to something greater, something bigger. And so I ask, I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you think needs to make, be made better in this world? What do you refuse to allow others to experience? Because from my research, it's shown that a lot of people, when they get older, they stand for something that they experience. They said, no, I'm not going to let others experience that. I'm not going to let others go through what I went through. I want to do something about it. I mean, all of those things you've been through, all those hardships, all those lessons learned, you don't keep those to yourself. God can do something amazing with them. He can use all things for the good of those who loved him have called him according to his purpose. I mean, God can do something with all that junk you've been through. And if you haven't found what you're completely broken over, if you haven't found that passion, start searching. Expand your world. Volunteer for things. Because if we were to be honest, it's pretty easy to just go to work and then have your family stuff. And if you have kids and you're just on the baseball field three nights a week, four nights a week, you're doing all this stuff. You can get so busy with you, you don't really have time for, for God, the things of God. 
But I just, if you haven't found what you're passionate about, go on mission trips. Go to other countries. Go volunteer at organizations. There are plenty in this community. You might not like it. Just go try it. See what God can stir in you. If you get outside of yourself for just a little while. Because as Christians, we are called to join God in making the world a better place. There's nothing else worth living for. So we've answered, why should we stand? Because, well, it's simply doing God's will. And how do I know what to stand for? It's that passion. So the next thing is, well, what can I do, Brian? And this, of course, will be different for everyone. We talked about in the second week about using our influence. But I wanted to go back over this some more because I I looked through some Bible stories to see what other people did when they had that passion, that, that burning desire. And well, Nehemiah's a great example. After Nehemiah stopped crying, I don't know, maybe he cried for a while. I don't know, Chuck, how long do you usually cry for? 10, 15 days, he said. All right, after he, 15 minutes, he said. Okay, but after Nehemiah did this, look at what it says. It says, Nehemiah 1.4, says, but when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When that passion, when that thing hit him, he didn't let it go. He didn't just ignore it. He didn't move on. He sat there with it. I mean, that's going to stir up emotions. It's hard to sit there with those feelings, isn't it? That burden, that, that thing. But he didn't just sit there with it. He prayed and fasted. Fasting is a great way to see clarity with God. I know some of us can't for medical purposes and other reasons, and some of us are just hungry people. I get that. But if you can, try it. Try praying and fasting. You can Google how to fast. There's all sorts of different ways you can try it. But fasting is a great way to seek direction from the Lord. Because acting too hastily, too quickly, it doesn't always work. Well, I mean, King Saul lost his kingship over that. And so when Nehemiah felt that burden, that passion, he sat with it. And I know that's hard. It's hard for me. Depending on how well you deal with emotions, maybe it's hard for you. But he sat with it and prayed and fasted and just lived in it. Then others, they speak up or speak out. That's what John the Baptist did. We know when King Herod divorced his wife or his brother's wife, which means he had to divorce his wife, she had to divorce his brother's wife, and then they got married. Like, not only is that nasty, if we were to really think through that, okay, not only is that nasty, this was the king who was supposed to be more of an example, and John the Baptist, he just spoke out against it. He spoke out. He said, that's just wrong. That's just nasty. And he had a platform for it, right? He was already a prophet doing some amazing things. So he used his platform to speak out against what was going on. But other times, maybe it's not speaking out. Maybe it's not just hitting send. Maybe it's speaking up. And this is hard. I was talking to Rocky this week, and we were talking about racism and the complexities of it and just how difficult this stuff is. And obviously, Rocky grew up in a different period of time than me. We know that. Yeah, just a little bit older than me, okay? So Rocky grew up in a different period of time, and he said that quite often throughout his life, he had to speak up in one-on-one and small group conversations, meaning if somebody would make a racist comment or something, if it was just two of them, or maybe a small group, he would speak up in a small setting and say, hey, that's not okay. And I'm telling you, it's easy to press send on a computer. When it's a one-on-one conversation and you have the boldness to maybe ruin that relationship for standing up the right thing, that's hard. Sometimes it's just speaking up because the truth is you can make more of a difference in one-on-one conversations than you ever can just by speaking loudly to everyone. 
So sometimes it's speaking out, sometimes it's speaking up, or sometimes it's just going to the right person who can do something. You see, one of the great injustices of the Bible is when Haman tries to wipe out the entire Jewish population because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. Y'all remember that story? Four of us do. We went through the story. We'll go through it again. Okay, five. All right. Remember, Haman was a, a trusted official for the king, and the king said that when people see him because he's so respected, they were supposed to bow and honor him, and Mordecai was like, I'm not doing it. He's like, I'm not bowing to him. It's just not happening. And Haman got so mad. He said, you know what? Let me think about this. This one guy won't bow to me, so I have a great idea. I want to kill his entire race. I want to kill all his relatives, all of his people, because this one guy won't bow. I want to kill all the Jewish people. And so he schemed up a plan to do it. He schemed up a plan and got the king's blessing to, to kill all of the Jews because of one person. Needless to say, when Mordecai found out, he was emotional. But luckily for him, he knew the new queen, didn't he? He raised her as his own daughter, Esther. You see, the king banished his last wife because when he said, come here, woman, she didn't come. Let me ask you a question. If you were to tell your wife, come here, woman, would she come? Mine would with a baseball bat, right? How many of y'all's wives? I'm sure Brenda would, Bill, right? Okay. Yeah, it doesn't work. But when he said to come, she didn't come. So he said, you know what? I'm banishing her from the land. So he needed a new wife, and Esther happened to be that person. So he goes to Esther, and he says, I need you to leverage a new relationship. I need you to stand up for your people. And so sometimes we know the right people to get things done. Sometimes we have a network so extensive, all those relationships we've built, all those favors we've done, instead of using them for your personal gain, some, some of you know the right people just to ask and get so much done. So sometimes it's going to the right people, or sometimes it's being the right person to get something done. You see, once Mordecai brought the problem to Esther, she had a dilemma because evidently the king was very protective of his time. Do you remember what happens if you go to the king and he doesn't reach out his scepter to you? Do you remember what he does? Anybody remember? Yeah, you die. So if you disturb the king and he doesn't extend his scepter to you, he kills you. And so Mordecai says, I need you to go to the king. She's like, well, I, he hasn't called me for a while. I don't know. He's mad at me. I don't know. Maybe I messed up dinner. She wasn't cooking. They had servants for that, okay? But whatever, he hasn't called me. She goes, if I go to him... He may divorce me. Remember what he did to his last wife? Or he may kill me. I mean, Mordecai, I can't just go to him. You've seen how rough this guy is. And this is where that famous line comes that I hope you already know. If not, you should underline this in your Bible, Esther 4, 14. He says, but if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your fam father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. See, she didn't have anyone else to pass the problem to. She had to take a stand, and it would be complicated. She had to risk her position. She had to risk her relationship. She had to risk her life to take a stand. But Mordecai's question is timeless. He goes, how do you know you're not where you're supposed to be to give your everything for God? Because if you believe in an all-sovereign God, that means he's positioned you in the right place for his purpose. And many of us, we've worked really hard, and we've gotten great educations, and we think where we are at is for our influence, for our purpose. But according to Mordecai, his question would be, well, how do you know you're not supposed to risk all that for God? 
How do you know he hasn't placed you there and given you the ability to have that education and given you the ability to work really hard so you can use your influence for this one moment? He's constantly asking us to step out on faith and risk it all for him. And the great thing for us is we know we serve a king who can take a little shepherd boy in the middle of nowhere whose own family doesn't even believe in him. God can take that little shepherd, man and tur- shepherd boy and turn him into the greatest warrior and king the nation of Israel has ever seen. I mean, we serve a God who can put you where you need to be. He can do that. So we need to figure out why he has us where we're at and what we're supposed to be doing for him. Nehemiah does something similar. When he finds out the walls, he prays and fasts, but then he plans. He knows he has to go to the right person to get this task done, but he also knows he needs to be the right person. Nehemiah spent four months planning. I don't like planning for four minutes, nevertheless, four months. But he was devising a scheme. All right, I got, I got to get this done. So eventually he goes to the king with his plan. And the king's never seen Nehemiah sad. Remember, they're friends. He works with them. And so Nehemiah comes in there with just a sad face on. And the king says, I've I've never seen you sad like this before. What makes you sad? Look at Nehemiah. He's pretty dramatic, I think. He says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lie in ruins and its gate have been destroyed by fire? First, notice fear is an amazing thing. You know, you can only be bold if you have fear. He was bold. So he tells the king, here's why I'm sad. Here's what's going on. So the king said to me, what is it you want? He says, then I prayed. He says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. This was one of the quickest prayers recorded in the Bible because it's not recorded. King asked him, he says, a quick prayer, Lord, be with me real quick. He says, oh, king. I'm not going to waste this opportunity. And by the way, side note, if you want to know where pastors get the audacity to ask for so many things and such big things, it's Nehemiah. It's the Bible. Because the king was like, oh, you're sad. What does he want? He's like, oh, why you're asking? Let me help you out. Can you send me back home so I can rebuild the walls and rebuild the gates on your, you know, on your dime? Like I still want to be paid and Also, I need letters to go to all the different governors in the area so they will help and, you know, they won't try to destroy us. In fact, I need some timber. I need to rebuild the gates and the walls and also need to rebuild a house. He throws this house in there. It's smart, isn't it? Like, well, I'm asking. I might as well go big. I need to build a house. So can you give me enough stuff to do all of this? And because of the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. That's what Nehemiah says in 2.8. He says, because of the gracious hand of God was on me, he granted my request. He knew that God was working to make this happen. He also knew that God put him in the place at this time to risk absolutely everything, to not only go to the king, but also be the person and ask permission to go carry out this passion. And the king not only let him go, the king sent him with army officers and a cavalry. He sent him with the army. He's like, yeah, go ahead, and here's my army to go get it done. Nehemiah not only went to the right person, he became the right person. And of course, for us, the greatest example of this is Christ. He took responsibility of our sin and became the right person to get done what needed to be done. He became what we needed so we could have salvation in him. So maybe God's actually calling you to take a stand. 
Maybe he's calling you to get a little bit nervous and stand up for that thing and that passion that he's put inside of you. So what can you do? Pray and fast. Seek his direction. Speak up, speak out, go to the right people, the right person, or become the right person. You say, well, Brian, when do I stand? Like, when, when does this happen? I mean, I'm busy. I got between soccer and the beach and the water park and baseball. That's just my life. I'm sure you got your own stuff, right? Like, we're busy. When do I do this? Well, the most obvious answer is this. You'll probably know this one. First, when God tells you to. It's always a great idea, isn't it? Remember the story of Jonah? What happens when he tells you to do something you don't do it? How well does that work out? It doesn't. You not only put your life in danger, you put the danger of everyone around you. Remember that when you ignore God's calling. But that's what we learned through the life of Elijah, that sometimes he may tell you to stand for him. You remember that? He told Elijah, remember the series Mountains and Valleys? He told Elijah to take a stand for him, and Elijah did it. But other times, he may tell you to stand for others. This is when it gets complicated, but this is what we see in the life of Moses. Remember, God heard the cries of his people in slavery and the unfair treatment. God heard their cries. And in fact, this was a passion that burned inside of Moses. You remember why he wasn't in Egypt any longer? He was on the outskirts. Hey, because he killed someone. He saw an Egyptian beating one of his people, a Hebrew. And so Moses decided to be really passionate and kill a man over it. Probably shouldn't take it that far. I'm not recommending that at all. But God used that passion that was ignited in him with the Christ, he heard of his people and said, Moses, I need you to go get my people out of there. But we're not always going to hear God's call, are we? We're not always going to have a burning bush experience. I personally wish we would. It would be so helpful when we gain extreme clarity, but it doesn't always happen like that. You see, a lot of times we should just stand because it's the right thing to do or a righteous or just cause. You see, some, one of the things that drive Bible scholars especially crazy is that in the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. Never. And I love it because it stops the excuses that you're supposed to have a burning bush experience. These people, this made it into the biblical canon to show us that sometimes you're not going to hear God's audible voice. You're not going to have a burning bush experience. Sometimes it's just going to be the right thing to do. Like when an entire people group about to get wiped out, it's probably a good idea to stand up for them, for the Lord. So sometimes you know you're just supposed to do it. And then other times it's just when you have the opportunity. Isn't that what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about? Someone's beaten lying on the side of the road. Everybody else walks by, but the Samaritan steps up and does something about it. The injustice is that everybody else walked by, the people of God. So there's all sorts of times when, but more importantly, is are we even looking for opportunities to stand? Next question is, where do I stand? And this is simple. This is wherever God places you. You can stand in your home. You may be standing at your work. You may be standing up in the community or maybe with the church. I'm not too sure. But we learned, remember in the first week, that God's faithful presence is here. That as God has been faithfully with us, we are to live our faith out wherever he has us. And that's here. Right here in Conway, right where you work, right where he may send you. It may be to Africa. It may be to Haiti. It may be to China. Or it may just be right here to Conway. And that's okay. You take a stand wherever he sends you, wherever his will leads you. And then lastly, almost done. Who should stand for an injustice? 
all of us. Every single one of us should stand for something. We should live our lives for something bigger than ourselves. It may look different for all of us, but I want to challenge to get out of the N-word selfishness. To look outside of yourself for opportunities to join God in working in this world. He's not just saving you. He's on a worldwide mission to save the world. But there's powers in numbers. So maybe for you it's joining a group of people who are already doing something. Or maybe it's with your Sunday school class or maybe with your small group. Maybe y'all can stand for something and be a part. Maybe look for other opportunities. Maybe he's calling you to lead something. Remember, leaders always have followers. So maybe it's your, your duty to rally people up around you. I'm not sure. You can join with what the church is doing. We're going to continue to look for opportunities to stand and help others in need. We're going to continue to support groups like CAP, which is churches assisting people, or Shepherd's Table that support people with food and, and things they need and also, part of the offerings that you give, your tithes and offerings, go to those organizations through the local church, and that's, that's a great thing. Hopefully, we continue to partner with Fostering Hope. You remember last year, we did a one-time offering, a one-weekend offering, and we raised over $8,000 to give to Fostering Hope with, with no limitations, whatever you need. Usually, when there are sometimes big checks come in or, or stuff like that, you know, usually it's there's a note to exactly what it has to go for, but we just said, hey, get what you need. So we're going to continue to that. Hopefully we'll continue to partner with Conway Elementary if kids ever go back to school. Can you all please pray that kids go back to school? For the sanity of my family, can you please pray that kids go back to school? But hopefully we'll continue to help kids at Conway Elementary. If you didn't know, the reason why we're helping Conway Elementary is because there's some kids who don't have the family presence for whatever reason, and we're not talking bad, but for whatever reason, they don't have the family presence to help their kids with the academics like other families do. And you could talk to several volunteers here. We had over 30 going to the schools to help little children get better at reading and academics. I mean, an injustice of kids not being able to do these things, so we stood up for that. You could talk to anybody who did it. Oh, they loved their little kid. Well, some of them were like, I, I wish I got another kid, but I know God has me with this kid. They made it very spiritual. Okay, they did. They made it very spiritual. Like, but I know God has me for this. But that's an injustice. Hopefully, as a church, we're going to continue to do things like this, but I want you to know that all of us are supposed to stand. So who? Well, maybe you. What's a passion or something that God has ignited in you? Maybe it was a long time ago and you've quenched it. You've put it out. You let the busyness of the world kind of let it go. But I want you to just kind of think through what's that thing in your life that needs to be made better? What's that wrong that's happening in the world or that's happened in the world or happened in your life that you say, I just can't stand it anymore? I pray that you seek the answer to that. And that you take a stand with the Lord. And find yourself, maybe for the first time, living for something greater than yourself. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, today we pray in the name of Jesus, just asking you for boldness and clarity. Lord, give us a passion for your work in this world. As we seek the burden and the passions that you've placed in us, Lord, we pray for your spirit's direction and guidance. Father, help us be agents of justice in this world for your glory. Help us 
Help us get away from our inward selfish focus and give ourselves to something bigger and greater. Father, we seek you and your will for our lives. We thank you so much for Jesus who gave up everything so we could be right with you. Father, we thank you so much for that gift of salvation that you offer to us that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter how many great sins we've committed, that you'll forgive us in the name of Jesus. That all we have to do is believe because of the finished works on the cross that Jesus came who was no sin and died for us. Lord, we thank you for that because you've made us right and we're declared righteous before you. I pray that each and every other one of us would look to make the world a better place, to stand for righteousness, to stand for justice because you are a righteous and just God. Father, I pray that we would be bolder than social media, that we would be bolder than arguments, that we'd be bolder than just looking at our lives and look outward and start working in this world for your glory. Father, we love you and we thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.